0: Civic Conversations is about sharing the good, discovering the civic impact that people are having on the world. Today's guest is Paul Parisi. Paul, thanks for being here. Paul Parisi is a visionary and entrepreneur who has spent his career in the motto of his firm, preserving the printed word. He started working in a bookbinding shop as a kid, working for his father throughout college and ended up buying out his former employer, doing high-end binding nationally for the country's major universities, including Harvard, his alma mater. His work with books has meant education has always been a part of his journey, from serving on boards to traveling across the world to read, learn, and teach. He's also done a magnificent job raising a family of six, I would know as his proud son. My name is Grant Parisi, and I'm joined in the studio today by Paul Parisi and Scott DeSantis. Paul, Scott, thanks for being here.
1: So, Paul, we'd love to learn a little bit more about your time in Bhutan, as Grant shares that that was quite an impactful time during your career.
2: Yeah, thank you, Scott. I had the opportunity, actually quite a few years ago now, over 20 years ago, to meet a man named Mike Hawley. Mike was at the time running the MIT Media Lab, and he... uh, called me one day he had found me actually in the yellow pages you probably don't know what the yellow pages are but it used to be how people would uh, find business connections and our company was acme bookbinding it was first in the list and so mike called me and he says can you produce a six foot tall book and i said sure i can do anything but are you serious so he was he got on his bicycle and he rode over to uh, acme which was two miles from mit and we started a conversation which led to us producing first one prototype and then over a hundred copies of the world's, world's largest published book. And I'll tell you, the book was generated from a series of photographs that Mike had taken in Bhutan when he was doing a technology project for the king of Bhutan. And the technology project was to help bring Bhutan into the modern era and to provide benefits to the people of Bhutan from money that was being generated from hydroelectric power and other sources of revenue, which were new to the kingdom. So Mike fell in love with the country. He had all these fantastic photographs and didn't know what to do with them. Decided the best way would be to produce this huge book. So we got started. We had to get an HP inkjet press in order to print these huge pages. And we had to invent the technology to bind it. And we had to do all of this on a really tight timeline. The book weighed a lot and it was huge and transporting it was a big problem. But Mike had made a couple of other friends. He had a friend at uh, FedEx who agreed to ship the books. They didn't realize that they were agreeing to ship such huge books. But nonetheless, we produced them, we shipped them. The very first one, believe it or not, was taken by um, train to Washington, D.C., And they had a hard time getting it there. And ultimately, two copies went to Bhutan, and they had to take the seats out of the plane in order to get the book in, because only small planes were flying into Bhutan at the time. But we produced the book. It was a success. They sold a lot of copies. We raised one and a half million dollars to support literacy in Bhutan. And later, we got to attend Mike's wedding in Bhutan and visit the kingdom and climb the peaks and have a fantastic time getting to know the people.
0: Quite a story. I guess not many people have found their start in the yellow pages to get on board, but it sounds like invention is a big theme from your success thus far. Tell us more about how creativity has impacted that story and your work with Mike and, and elsewhere.
2: Yeah, well, again, I started off in a tiny business. My father had five employees and sales of the company were tiny. We had very few assets and we were not a very bankable company. And I was in college and I wanted to grow this business. So I wrote up an economics paper on a hypothetical investment in the business. My professor liked it. My dad liked it. And I started down that path. But we had to gamble because we had nothing to lose. And that's one of the advantages of being young. And my father, I guess, had the good fortune or the bad luck to have believed in his son. And he, he agreed to let me do this. So we borrowed some money, we invested in some new equipment, and then we started growing. And uh, we some of the technology, you know, we back in the 1970s were binding single books in quantities of many. And the technology to do that efficiently didn't exist. So I went to work, you know, we used Microsoft 1.1 and we invented a, a software to enable our library clients to send us files that would enable us to create the books, put the titles on them, get them to and from the collection and, and do it all with a lot of automation, eliminating all the handwork of, if you remember this term, I have ever seen it: linotype, hot metal casting of characters to uh, create the titles of books with handset type. It was all crazy the way we used to do it. And we automated this and we built machines to do it all with um, great efficiency. And we started building a network within our bindery to do things which today are very common, but back in the seventies were unheard of. And you know, a young kid in in Boston trying to do this—it was a little bit out of the box. But we succeeded. We got the bank to loan us some money. We bought a building. We grew. We uh, bought other companies, and it was all completely unfounded. Nobody in their right mind would loan us any money to do this today. But back then, you were able to do some things. We had some SBA loans to help us finance, and we had some people who we bought out who trusted us, trusted me, to be able to pay them back because uh, that was all we. All we had as collateral was our promise that we would pay. There wasn't much collateral otherwise. And so we grew the business from 200,000 to 24 million over a period of years and had a lot of fun along the way, met some fantastic people. And I'd like to say that the best part of my experience in business was all the great, creative, talented, joyful people that I got to meet. And my colleague was just one of them, one of the most amazing men that's ever walked the planet
1: we you're getting us back to the beginning of your, your business. We'd love to even go back further. Can you tell us more about where you grew up and how it landed to where you found yourself starting in the business?
2: Yeah, I was born in Cambridge, as was my dad. And my father had worked at the Harvard Bindery after World War II. It was a temporary job that he thought before he found out something more permanent for him. It ended up being his career. And he worked at the Bindery, and very soon he decided that it wasn't really a good fit for him. His boss was a guy named Sam Donnell, who, in addition to running the Harvard Bindery, was Dean of Admissions at the Harvard Business School. And he had two paths. He was actually tapped from the business school to sort of help this Bindery get its rudder straightened out. So my father um, decided he was going to start his own business on a much smaller operation, wanted to work part-time for the Bindery and part-time for himself. And his boss Sam thought that this wouldn't work out, so he called my dad the first day that my father was to be working independently, and said, "My father's name was Bud." He said, "Bud, I think it'd be better if we each went our own way. You do your thing, and I'll do mine, and um, good luck to you." So my mother had a doctor's appointment that day, and my father was driving her to the doctor's appointment when he he told her that he had been fired. And my mother, who was the daughter of a An Italian immigrant, illiterate immigrant, day laborer, was born in 1929 and she wasn't a big risk taker. And so she said to my father, you better drive faster. And my father said, what's up? And my mother was in labor. She was pregnant with my brother, John, the third of their three children. And they got to the hospital. John was born. And my father at this point was unemployed and had to support his family. So he worked multiple jobs in addition to running his company. And I grew up in this family farm type operation. You know, the kids worked, the parents worked, everybody worked to try and keep this small business alive when it really had no good prospects of success. And so um, when I was in college, we were still struggling with the business. And um, I had been working there summers and weekends and most of my life and had gotten to know the business and decided that I would help my dad out for a few years and help him get the thing straightened out and then gradually... Um, you know, go back on my own career path, not knowing what that might be. But I I had really wanted to be an engineer or do something uh, different from bookbinding. And as it turns out, I ended up doing a number of engineering-related things with uh, machinery and invention of technology within the business that was satisfying to me, but but not what I had planned.
0: That was a long few years.
2: <laughs> yeah, it turned out to be 40-plus years of uh, temporary <laughs> assignments. So. <laughs>
0: What a remarkable story. So you're a young kid, father is, is in the business, the family is struggling to keep making ends meet. How did you get people to trust you? You referenced earlier the bank giving you money on no collateral, what was that like? How did you make it work?
2: It wasn't easy. We visited a lot of banks. I don't know if you've seen the movie Burlesque, but in that movie, Cher is trying to get a bank loan and ultimately no one will give her a bank loan. That was kind of the situation we were in. Without collateral, the banks weren't your friends. But we, we found a small bank, Shamit Needham Bank, and got them to gamble on us. And we were lucky in that we were able to tie that in with an SBA loan so that the SBA kind of underwrote a portion of the loan. And it was a big risk. And this was, I have to tell you, interest rates were 17% at the time. And so the uh, you know the burden of paying back the debt was a lot greater than it is today. And there was no angel investors. there was it was really just sweat equity. so we we gambled. we were lucky with the bank, and we actually stayed with that bank until just this past year. and i I chuckle about this because my friend Jerry Sargent, who now is President of Citizens Bank, he went, you know through various uh, iterations of the bank along the way to end up with Citizens, where he's now president. And he loaned us our first chunk of money that we needed to get started. But this past year, when we have a tremendous amount of equity in our property and in our business, but because we were no longer going to be owner occupied, uh, we had to switch from Citizens Bank to a new bank because we didn't fit the current banking rules. So even though it was a fantastic security in the property, they could no longer loan us money. And so we switched banks. So uh, I, I'd say banking relationships uh, for a young person today, I. I don't know how they do it. I think you have to find some sort of different um, equity investment other than the banking community because banks generally are not your friend. They'll only give you money if you don't need it. So they they help you grow when you're really doing it with your own capital. But starting out, we didn't have that opportunity and we got lucky. And I'll say the, the thing that really worked for me was that I guess I was, I was a convincing storyteller. I told people what my vision was. And people bought into it and believed it. And I worked my tail off to make it work. I think that really is the answer. Sweat equity is the way that you make things succeed. When it looks like you'll absolutely fail, that's when you have to buckle down and work harder and always believe that you'll succeed. And if you, if you have that uh, confidence, things will work out. They have for me and my business and all the other stories I've heard of other people who have succeeded. They've all hit the wall and kept on going. If you agree to fail, then you do. But if you refuse to fail, then you don't. Do
1: you think that that energy that you have was contagious to the people around you? And you mentioned building the team from a few people to quite a number of people. Can you tell us more about that journey and how you inspired others?
2: Yeah, well, I, I think that people like leadership that believes in the mission. You know, if you're there working with the team and you're and you're a team as opposed to a leader talking down to the troops, people that I've been fortunate to work with haven't liked that approach. And that's never been my style. We've always had a, a team approach. We were all in it together. And we've always believed that anybody on the team can change the plan. If you see that things aren't working out well, your advice matters just as much as the guy at the top. I think that's the Israeli pattern of how they operate because they have their, back, their backs against the sea. And if things don't work out, then they're they're finished as a country. Well, that was the case with our business. You know, if we made a mistake along the way, we, we couldn't afford a mistake. And we made a few, but we had to survive them. So having a, a team approach is, I think, a good way to do that. And, and having good advisors, uh, I think that's also key because nobody has all the answers. And even the team of staff that you have is is helpful and interested in succeeding but outside advisors are key and in our case we had you know a great lawyer we had a, a fantastic banker and we had a great accountant so financial advice business advice and legal advice is key
0: you've then taken that role of advisor later on in your career and transposed it to or sat in the other seat and been an advisor to educational institutions and Pass your knowledge on to the next generation through books and through other means. What was that journey like?
2: Yeah, well, I'll share two quick stories with you. One was that um, in 1988, we helped the North Bennett Street School, a trade school in Boston, um, start a bookbinding program. And I've been advisor to them since then and still to today. And that program has been very successful teaching people the craft of bookbinding. And on a totally different level, I got involved with my kids' school. You know, we put our kids in independent schools when uh, they were three years old. Grant, you were the first, along with your sister, Justine. And we sort of jumped into independent school with both feet. And we decided that if we're going to have our kids in the school, because Maggie, my wife, and I both went to public schools, knew nothing about independent schools, and we, and we wanted to get involved. So as in a lot of things in life, you have to write a check in order to get through the door. So we made a contribution to the annual fund and I got a phone call following that asking if I would like to serve on the board. And so I ended up serving 12 years on the board, six years as chairman of the board, got to work with really fantastic people, including the head of school and other parents and the uh, management and and faculty at this fantastic independent school, Mishobur Brooks in Concord. And I learned more than I ever could hope to have learned. I, I think we did some great work at the school. We did some great building projects. We raised a lot of money. We helped to uh, increase the financial aid to students who couldn't afford to go to the school. And we really put the, a strong foundation under a young school and positioned it to be able to survive you know, this recent COVID trauma and, and other events, which have uh, been bumps in the road for that school. But I learned the you know the management style is the same in every organization. You have to take the talented people within your group and give them the room to run. And you have to, in the case of a school, you have to teach young people to take risks. You know, whether it's standing up on a stage and, and singing in front of a crowd of people and you don't have a good voice, or whether it's getting up on stage and acting, uh, you know, as a female when you're a male, whether it's doing something in writing or in sports or in any endeavor, where you do something that you feel you can't do, but you still do it. And in a safe environment, you know, school is a safe environment. That's a great place for people to spread their wings and, and learn to take risks. But, you know, in life, you never accomplish anything really meaningful unless you've gone beyond what you think you can do. Doing something extra is always hard, is always uh, traumatic, but is, is the most rewarding once you've reached success. And along the way, you have to accept failure. So I think the school, for me it was a great opportunity to grow and to give back. And I later on got involved with the Fence School and with the Middlesex School and served on the board at Middlesex. And, and it's, it's I'd say the most rewarding work I've ever done. It's, it's really um, a privilege, uh, especially as you get to be a little bit older and I'm now approaching age 68. It's great to be able to share a little bit of what I've learned with younger people who I'm incredibly impressed
0: by. We've learned just in chatting with you offline about that last point that you mentioned, your hope for the next generation, is that chiefly informed by your work with schools or in your travel or what gives you hope when you think about the next generation of business leaders or changers for the world? Well, you
2: mentioned travel. Uh... My wife, Maggie, has gotten our family on the on the mission of attempting to visit every country in the world. And we've been fortunate to have visited very many all over the place, many types of countries, big, small, exotic. And it's been a great privilege to see people, young people, especially, but when when we've traveled, we've you know we visited schools, we've visited museums, we've visited ghettos. we've visited the, you know the real parts of the country that make us able to, be able to say we've seen the way that people live in the country, not just the way the rich people live. And what I've learned in traveling is that people are the same everywhere, whether they're Muslim, whether they're Buddhist, whether they're Catholic, whether they're atheist, whether they're Jewish, whether they're whatever, people are all the same. They love their children. They have great talent. They have different opportunities and their achievements are limited by those opportunities. But the joy that we find in people, the generosity that we've enjoyed And the inspiration that I found from what people are able to do, if given the chance, has really informed my life and and allowed me to, I think, be a better parent. I think my kids have had richer lives because they've uh, traveled and because they've seen the life experiences of others, less fortunate and more fortunate. And it's really made them realize that the opportunities that they have, as citizens of the world, but citizens of the United States, you have an opportunity and a privilege to try and leave the world a better place than you found it and to be open to the possibilities that are in front of you and that aren't so obvious. And so education, I think, is a great thing. Reading, I think, is key. If you combine reading with travel, I think you have the whole world as your oyster. And reading, I think, unfortunately, is not as popular today as it, as it should be because it is such a fantastic gift. I think the public library is the greatest treasure there is. And anybody who doesn't have the habit of reading should rethink that.
1: Well, certainly not surprising to hear your focus on reading, given your work in the bookbinding business, but that focus on education, right, and the impact that that has on others and this access to information that books have and that ultimately pictures of Bhutan, for example, travel, giving that to people. How did those themes inspire your business and ultimately how you ultimately grew the business to create more impact?
2: Well, the people that I've been privileged to work with, the authors, the artists, the book designers, the publishers, all of these business people, they're they're all creative people. And creative people always have a, a vision and a dream, which is contagious. And so working with those people, you want to do the best job you can. So, And especially working in the design field, designers always want to do what's not possible. They create this book concept, which which has never been done before, like this huge book for Bhutan, or new designs that make you challenge your thinking on what you can do and and then ultimately to accomplish it successfully. And in manufacturing, you have to not just do it once as with the Bhutan books, but you have to do it many times over. So consistency and engineering for equipment to be able to produce these products sort of grows from all of these um, creative people who have a dream. And so being, On the manufacturing side and working with the creative people on the design side, it creates this energy, which is, I think, in some ways similar to you, Grant, Scott, in in your business. You know, you have people who have a dream about having a a financial objective, and how do they get there? Well, you you have to take some chances, and you have to have a plan, and you have to stick to the plan, and you have to have a confidence in yourself and your ability to achieve the goal. But you have to have the steadiness to stick with it. And I think it's been the same in my case. But but the key is to have great people that you're working with, because if you don't take on great challenges, then you don't achieve things. And and that means taking risks.
0: A lot of the keys to success that, or your success that you've been sharing, you framed in pretty universal terms, but I can't help but notice and witnessing firsthand the trajectory of your career that the bookbinding business over the past 50 years has been anything but linear, and technology has thrown not just curve balls, but fastballs, slowballs, spitballs at you. <laughs> Tell us more about just the disruptive force of technology and how you've had to adapt and how you think entrepreneurs today will have to continue to adapt to succeed.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, you have to be willing to bet the farm and and any business and both when you're starting out and when you're far down that road. So, as you say, we've had a lot of challenges in our business. You know, there was a period of of growth where buying other companies was the key to success. And we, in the library binding business, that was one of our core businesses, you know, we basically bought all our competition. And then at that point, the market had shrunk so much that being hundred percent of the market was still not a a successful plan. So we branched out into trade binding and and doing larger runs of books and dealing with totally different projects. And so that meant investments in in major pieces of technology and, and huge changes in our business plan, which for me meant that I had to also consider merging the business, taking on partners, giving up total control, which is a big step. And then later on, I had to consider selling the business to a competitor and going into his operation as an advisor and transitioning my own career to be more of a real estate manager and and entrepreneur than a a manufacturing person. So today, I wear several hats. I'm chairman of the board of one company that's sort of dominant in its industry niche. I'm a vice president of sales and marketing in another business, which is, is growing with new technology and manufacturing. And I'm managing partner of a real estate business, which is nothing I never would have ever dreamed of. I always thought I wanted to run my own show totally. And now I'm doing a little bit of, of many things. So I think you have to be flexible. You have to, um, even though you make a plan, you have to be willing to change it. And you have to be willing to throw in the chips when you don't have the best hand. So you really have to be practical and prudent as well as risk-taking.
1: Well, of all the hats that you're wearing today, which one's giving you the most energy? I have to say the real
2: estate one, just because it's a whole new thing for me. You know, I've I've been in manufacturing and real estate was sort of the home for the business. And today the business has moved out of that home and it's operating in Indiana and Nebraska and North Carolina and uh, Braintree, Mass. And the real estate business is really where we have a lot of um, excitement and energy because we happen to be in a great location. And as they say in real estate, location, location, location. So we're excited to be starting a new path. And so one of our challenges is, do we sell the real estate and, and sort of pack up our tent and just uh, sort of ride out our retirement? Or do we sort of continue to build the real estate business with the kids and for the grandchildren? And um, we think that's the path we're taking. You know, never really being one to want to sort of slow down. I kind of like the, the pace and, and the excitement and the challenges of, of new business opportunities. And I'm looking forward you know, to doing more. My family is very fortunate that we all live to be 100 years old, and I'm just 68, so I have a long way to
0: go. Your story, your business, most of your career has been, as we've been discussing, focused on books. Something that seems to be less and less prevalent, perhaps, with the advent of eBooks, Kindle, podcasts like ours and others. How do you grapple with that and where do you think that leads us and the world more broadly moving forward? Is does it excite you? Is it scary? Tell us more about that, you know, whole conundrum.
2: Yeah, I tell you, it worries me. As I said, I think reading is the greatest gift that humanity passes from one generation and from past generations to the next. You know, you have a window into every person who's ever lived and put their ideas on paper, either as words or images. And it's amazing. And I think it's, it's a better package. It's a better delivery on paper than it is when it's just on screen. And I really hope that the reading of physical books rebounds. And, and from what I'm told, the publishing of printed books is growing. A lot of people believe it's declining. That's not true. There are more printed books today than ever before. There happen to be a lot of other information sources, which are digital and online. And the information that's available today is amazing, but scary because much of the information that's available to people today is not true. It's information that is uncontrolled. It's unedited. It's scary to me. And I think that some of the disruption that we see in our politics and in our world is because information is is no longer filtered. And I guess that's progress. I'm not sure progress is always good. So I would like to see more focus on reading, because when you read and you and you pick all of the sources of your information and you're able to vet them, you can read you know, books from multiple authors, from multiple viewpoints, you can form your own opinions as opposed to accepting the opinions that other people hand to you, which are trying to push you in a direction. They're trying to manage your thinking and really you're buying because they're trying to control how you spend your money and what you listen to and what you do. And I'd like to see people travel, form their own opinions, read a wide variety of books, whether they're digital or print, doesn't matter, and be more independent in their thinking. I think that, uh, you know, young people to me are amazing because they, they don't believe what their parents told them. They have to do it themselves, make their own mistakes, do it themselves, do their own discovery. And I think that's something that makes me positive about the world, makes me encouraged about the world. Young people will solve all these problems. But today, you know, from an older man's eyes, there are a lot of problems in front of the world. And I think technology is one of them. Information that's unfiltered, that's untrue, is, is coloring a lot of people to have opinions, which, which I don't share, which I think aren't, aren't helpful to the world. And I think that world peace is, uh, you know, really going off subject here, but but world peace is something that has has never been a major objective. I think war has been a bigger part of economies and business strategy than peace. And that's that's so unfortunate. You know, We should have a peace foundation. And you, know, if we could end all the wars and end all the guns and end all the violence, what a better world it would be. And then we'd have more time and money for books. So uh, <laughs> my answer to the world to everything is more books, fewer bullets.
1: I like that. More books, fewer bullets. So the call to action is to read, but To read the right stuff so is that any recommendations for our listeners in terms of what to be reading to either better our business selves or the social mission that we hope to give to others
2: i'd say it's like travel i think you want to read things that you're unfamiliar with read authors who you don't know read read young authors read established authors you know i think you read the classic books all of the great books that you know have been passed down for generations should be read and understood But I think, you know, you have to read broadly and read continuously. If you don't have a stack of books on your bedstand, go out and get some. Go to a public library, ask your librarian, you know, what to read. Read newspapers um, if they're still around and you can find them. But I'd say it doesn't matter what you read as long as you read continuously. And, you know, read the comics, read anything. Reading is is such a fantastic habit, it's contagious. And I think my great pride in life is that my four kids and the other kids that have come into the family, my son-in-law and my future my daughter-in-law, they're readers as well. And you know, I hope our grandkids will be readers. And I think reading is the answer. Reading and travel and, and, and confidence in young people to do a better job than our generation has it's, is the key.
0: Thank you so much for taking the time to be on our episode today. Paul, dad. And I think I've got the message. A bit more time until the next episode and read some books in the meantime. Really pleasure having you. We look forward to more of your recommendations upcoming.
2: Okay. well, thank you, Grant. Thank you, Scott. You have to take a few risks and you have to have a plan and you have to somehow think beyond what you think you can do. Thank you for having me on your
0: podcast. You can listen in to more Civic Conversations online on your favorite podcast app.